We're going to talk about nature versus miracles. Um, nature versus miracles. Um, obviously, this is from the perspective of Chassidus, Chabad Chassidus. So, I'm going to limit everything I say to that perspective. Um, so, if any question goes outside that framework, um, I'm not going to answer it. The... There are many places to start talking about nature versus miracles. And the first place to start is, is the difference between nature versus miracles something that exists objectively? Or are nature nature versus miracles refer to how we experience things? Now, you do have statements in Hasidus which indicate the latter approach such that nature is just like an ongoing miracle, a miracle that's repeated, a miracle that you, that, that, that you expect. Um, so the idea that the sun rises every morning is a miracle, but because it rises every morning, our familiarity with it means we relate to it differently than if you know, the water would turn to blood in, in Egypt. Okay. And I want to acknowledge that that side of the equation exists Um, because I'm not going to talk about it the rest of the class. Um, I'm going to talk about the other side of the equation, that there is actually an objective difference between miracles and nature, um, and leave it to people's further study how that idea, which is found in Chassidus, is reconciled with the idea I'm going to talk about. But I feel that it would be um, not 100% honest to present only one side of the issue. The basic evidence that there is an objective difference between a miracle and nature is that we have a requirement to make blessings with regard to miracles. So if you were to go to the place where the Jews crossed the Red Sea, which, and you were to know for sure that that was the place, you would require to make a blessing. Okay. Um, just like we make a blessing um, on the Hanukkah candles, Sha'asa nisim la'veseinu bayom mehem bismanazeh, who, who um, God, who, who did a miracle for our forefathers at the, uh, in those days at this time. So there's a similar blessing when you encounter a place where God did a miracle for our forefathers, who, that he made, did a miracle in this place for our forefathers. Um, similarly, um, in fact, the, the sages say that Shlomo, King Solomon, actually put um, pillars to mark that place so that Jews were passing would know. It's been lost to history. We don't know where this is. Um, there's similarly, when you encounter a place where a miracle was done for you, there's a blessing, that God did for me a miracle in this place, um, or to one's um, um, immediate ancestors, where it's decided the singular, to, to, to my, my father, etc. But there, there is a halachic difference, and we see the sages instituted holidays uh, on the basis of miracles. Um, the only of those holidays that remain in halacha for reasons we're not going to talk about are Hanukkah and Purim, but it seems to be that, that in as much as any category in the world is treated as objectively, the halacha does treat miracles as a distinct thing from nature. And no, there is no blessing that one says on the miracle of giving birth, indicating that birth is in fact a natural thing, which acts as ramifications in halacha and other areas that birth is a natural thing. Um, some of them rather unpleasant we won't talk about right now. 
So the reason why this is a question is that when you consider that Torah teaches that Hashem created the world and created the world ex nihilo, so the, the entire structure of the world is something that he decided upon. Um, and moreover, Hasidus teaches that creation has an ongoing quality to it. It's not that God creates the world once and then that's it. It's that the, the ongoing existence of the world requires the creative act to continue. So it seems that everything is an act of God and, and everything is based on how God wants it to be. So what really would be the difference between the nature um, and the miracle? They seem to be the same thing, right? And again, we could, we could say, oh, when God does something repeatedly, again, but that goes back to kind of a, a, the, the way we experience it, the frequency. It doesn't have to do with like there's actually something substantively different between these two things. Um, this touches on another idea, which is a more general question in Judaism, which is if everything is, a, if, if, if God is running the world, what is the need for miracles? The, the naive notion that many people have miracles is that when God intervenes, that's a miracle, right? But that only makes sense if you kind of have a, a pagan view of God where, you know, the world kind of exists and runs on its own accord and then God occasionally steps in when he's particularly concerned about something, right? Which is fine if... God forbid you worship Zeus or Apollo, it doesn't make any sense when you talk about you know, a monotheistic God who creates the world out of nothing because he wants it to be, exist the way it exists, right? It doesn't make any sense. So that's a general question that Jewish philosophers have. Um, you know, what, you know why, why would there need to be a different category? You know, if, if, if God wants the world to work in a certain way, then that should be the way the world works. Why, what's the need for it to kind of intervene or override? Okay. So that's a general question that we're going to, that, that Hasidus' explanation of what the difference between a miracle and nature is, is going to touch on as well. Okay. I'm going to start by using a metaphor. Um, we have many devices that we use nowadays, phones, air conditioners, refrigerators, etc., right? And all these work because there's electricity, right? Electricity is the energy that, that keeps all these things running, right? If, if there's no electricity, your phone is basically just a useless object, right? Now, if you think about it then, right, it's not that you need, it's not that, it's not that there's a bunch of different types of energy, there's just one energy, electricity. And the differences that we find between say, the screen, which we can see, and the, and the, um, and the micro, and not the microphone, the um, speakers, which we hear, right? And the air conditioner, which cools, right? And the heating element, which heats, right? That, that isn't, that, those differences dissolve away when we talk about the electricity that powers it all, right? That makes sense? Okay. So now, you learn Hasidus, and you know, there's a world, of world, philosophy called this the phenomenological, the world we experience, right? There's, my favorite example, the picture, right? There's me, there's good, there's evil, there's pain, there's pleasure, right? There's all sorts of stuff that can be experienced in all sorts of different ways, but it's all being created and enlivened and governed by this one divine energy, right? So the analogy of like electricity makes a certain kind of sense, yeah? You, know, we're all, you all see the parallel between electricity. In fact, somebody may have even actually used that analogy or something similar to explain 
this idea, right? If you pull the plug, it all stops working, right? God withdraws his energy, it all disappears, right? Good? So why is this analogy wrong? Not just wrong, but deeply wrong. Mis- wrong to the point that it leads you to the, cor- exact inc- the exact opposite conclusion from what Chassidus is actually trying to say. Yeah. Okay, so so the thing is, where any analogy, there's 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 two things that are actually different being compared. So you're comparing the 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 energy of the electricity making whatever device it is work the way it does to you know the divine energy creating that thing and enlivening it in a particular way. So I I realize those are not the same things, right? But any analogy is not talking about the same thing, right? But the idea is that you have this, this, this phenomenon in case, like say the device is working, the screen being able to see, the speaker is making sound, right? The air conditioner cooling things off, right? These phenomena, and they are only happening in as much as the electricity is actually flowing, right? In a similar, but obviously different way, the phenomenological world that we experience exists only as much as the divine energy creates it and enlivens it, etc., etc., etc. And the electricity, you know, is, is just this energy that can empower many different things, and so too God's energy creates many different things. I know, but I'm not because in analogy, you're not talking about how are the things similar. Talking about how their right the the relationship. So. What's wrong with the analogy? Now, I realize there's a lot of differences between electricity and God's energy. There's a lot of differences between air conditioners and reality coming into existence and being governed and enlivened. But setting those differences aside, is, there, is that parallel a correct parallel to draw? Right? That's what analogies are. They're right? the same thing. Yeah. Is it because electricity is still always working the same way? That's right. You don't need special air conditioner electricity for your air conditioner and special um, hot plate electricity for your hot plate and special, you know, visual electricity for the screen and audio electricity, right? It doesn't work like that, right? And so, in other words, the difference between these different devices and how they function has nothing to do with electricity, right? So there's, there's a dualism there, right? That it works is due to electricity. How it works, right, has nothing to do with the electricity. So if I were to say that God is like the electricity, well, then that would need like, well... I'm forced into one of two possible conclusions. Either something other than God's energy is responsible for the difference between the pitcher and myself. And now I'm in the danger of you know, the two gods, and that's not a good place to be if you're a Jew, right? Two kind of powers. Or alternatively, and maybe this, this seems correct to some people, but is also very wrong from a, from a Jewish perspective, we'll get to a second, that maybe there really is no real difference between me and the pitcher. Maybe if you know, we're both being created by the same divine energy, then the differences are just what seem to me to be differences, but those differences are not, they don't have any real objective reality to them. I mean, that, that could be, right? The problem here is um, we have this thing called halacha, which is God's will, right? And halacha is predicated on distinct entities and distinct events occurring, right? For instance, if there's no such thing as the sun setting, is there Shabbos? If there's no such thing as a fire, can there be the violation of Shabbos by creating a fire or extinguishing a fire? Right? 
And so if there's, if there's no, if, if, if vis-a-vis God, vis-a-vis ultimate truth, there is no difference between me picking up the pitcher and me lighting a fire, then the whole notion of halacha, of Jewish law, of mitzvahs becomes nonsensical. So if we say that it is, it is genuinely significant to God that we observe the commandments, that means the distinct entities and events that this world is made up of are real in as much as God is concerned, and they're differentiated, they're not the same, and God and God alone is the creator of those things, so those differences have to trace back to him in some sense, right? In other words, we have to, the differences go deeper than simply this world. The difference between myself and the picture doesn't begin in me and myself, it starts off, for lack of words, in God in some sense. So he's not limited to just nature or just miracles? Well, I didn't get to the nature of miracles yet. Okay. But any sort of I didn't. I didn't even say what nature miracles are. Okay. So the first thing that we need to understand is that that if if we're going to take it that observing Torah mitzvahs is a real thing, it's real to God, then the differences between things things in this world that we experience, this phenomenological world, are real. The differentiation is real, and therefore the source of that differentiation has to be within the same divine energy that creates the world. Right? The same thing that creates the picture makes the picture different than me, which means the divine energy that relates to me is in some way unique to me as a person and to the picture as a picture. Does that make sense? Okay. In Hasidus, this is understood as the divine word, Dvar Havai, the word of God, that the word of God is individual Every single creation, um, or more particularly, every single, every single kind of creation has a unique divine word that creates it. So the divine word that creates a rock is not the divine word that creates a tree. Okay? And the analogy of speech here is helpful because you know, a person can, when they're speaking, they can produce many different words. Right? Those words can, and those words may all stem from trying to express one meaning. Right? I might have one idea I want to convey, but I have to speak for 45 minutes using you know, multiple sentences and, and words to actually convey that. So the Baal Shem Tov has this sense that God is speaking the world into existence. And every single created entity is the is the result of one of the words that God says, or every single kind of created entity is the result of one of the words that God says. And as far as God is concerned, you know, it's a coherent paragraph. Um, whether it's coherent to us is a separate discussion. Good? Okay. So now, we have to have that model in our head, right? We have to erase the model of like, you know, of, of the, 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 the electricity that's not a good analogy. You have to think of that analogy of, of, of how a person speaks and produces distinct words, maybe all to convey one meaning. Now, we have to now address what, what is the word, what is nature and what is a miracle? How are we going to understand these? And then we'll, once we understand these kind of as the, the words themselves, then we're going to put them in the, in the framing of how God creates the world that we just discussed. The Hebrew word that is used for nature is teva. I'm sure people are familiar with this, yes? And many meanings have been given um, to teva 
and thus what we mean by nature in, in rabbinic scholarship. And they, there's actually a Hasidic discourse of the sixth Chabad Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, um, where he actually enumerates five distinct meanings of the word nature that are found throughout Jewish sources. And he weaves them together. We're not going to do that. That's rather complex. Um, we're going to focus specifically on one meaning, which I would consider to be the primary meaning, especially in the context of when comparing miracles and nature. Okay? Because again, I want the meaning of miracle, nature that miracle is meant to be in contrast to. So to do that, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you a story. There was a man named Rabbi David Nito. You ever heard of him? Nito. Nito. I may be mispronouncing his name. You can look him up on Wikipedia. Um, he was rabbi, he was one of the rabbis on the rabbinic court of London in the 1600s. And he gave a speech in the shul. This was the Sephardic community because the Ashkenazim weren't really uh, allowed there. Longer historical note. And um, he gave a speech and he said something to the effect of what, um, what, the, what the scientists call nature, we call God. God is nature and nature is God. And um, how do you think that went over in the show? Yeah. It went over very badly. <laughs> now, for a little historical context, this is the time where you have Spinoza um, and the idea of, of atheism slash pantheism. And I'm saying them, these two things is treated the same, right? The idea that, that, that the world, that exi- everything is in some sense God, the world itself is God, which in sense means there is no transcendent God who governs from on high above, right? So these ideas, pantheism, atheism, were kind of treated as the same idea from a religious point of view. And this was considered very bad. And all of a sudden you have one of the rabbis of the rabbinic court saying the same thing. You can see why that would be um, a big up for. And um, he argued that he, what he was saying was traditional Jewish belief. And <laughs> this goes to one of the great rabbis of the generation named the Chacham Tzvi. <clears throat> in response to 18. I happen to know this because I've taught this many times. I don't know the response of Chacham Tzvi by heart, but it's in response to 18. And he has a response, and he argues that Rabbi David Nito was in fact correct. But he differentiates, he differentiates in that from two meanings of nature. Okay? Sometimes we use nature, and you'll see this, by the way, if you, if you read science articles and magazines. Sometimes you, you see nature being used and if you looked at that sentence and you erased the word nature and you put in the word God, the sentence would make perfect sense, right? Um, nature has determined that such and such, right? You'll see a sentence like that. Or, or um, um, sometimes, by the way, now that we have evolution, people say natural selection, right? But this kind of, of the world is a certain way. And in explaining it, our, we naturally fall back to thinking of some kind of agent, some kind of a someone who makes it happen. But because God forbid we should say it's God, so then we like substitute some other word. Right, yeah. Or some people say the universe. Right, we'll say the same idea. Right, but but they're thinking they're they're using that word nature in in an, in a the end of explanation. In other words, what it is that causes the reality to be the way it is, which shall go nameless. We are going to now call it nature. And if you're using nature in that sense, right, as a as a as a, as a person who believes in the Chumash and believes in, in Judaism, right, what word should go there instead? God, and, and they are referring to God, maybe not the totality of God, right? Now, that's not so controversial, right, if you read it that way. So how did, how did everyone else understand it? Well, they understood it in a different sense, which is they understood um, 
that things exist and those things, those things are natural. What does that mean? They have properties um, or tendencies. So for instance, the heat of the fire. Can you imagine fire that isn't hot? Does that make it make sense? No, right? Can you imagine um, a uh, water that isn't wet? It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense, right? right? So we think of things in terms of these kind of natural properties and natural tendencies. Now, sometimes things have unnatural properties. And I don't mean like it's supernatural. I just mean like, for instance, if the water is boiling, right? Is it natural for water to be boiling? Now, now, if I expand my understanding of nature, and I say, actually, it is. It's natural for water to be boiling when it's in the presence of heat, right? So this way of thinking of, like, of, of things, that things have these predispositions, these tendencies, these characteristics that really make them the kind of thing that they are and how they exist and interact in the world, right? Um, and, you know, is God the heat of the fire? No, he is not the heat of the fire. That's heresy in Judaism. Because God is not, what? He's not the fire either. Let's be very clear. He created the fire. And if you create something, you are not the thing that you create, right? It's a very, very, right? The identification of God with his creations is the most basic notion of idolatry in Judaism. Right? That makes sense, right? We don't, right? People cannot be God. God cannot be a person. God cannot be the fire. Are, are there elements of God? No, 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 no. I, I know we talk about these. We have to, when you learn mystical language, you have to understand right, the mysticism. Okay. So now, does the fire exist? Yeah. Would the fire, the fire doesn't exist? It does exist. Would fire exist without God? No. Now, more particularly, have we just ascertained, right? How the Baal Shem put it, right? Would the fire exist? Well, it's not God, 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 God actually has to make the fire exist specifically as fire, right? So what is it that the fire requires? The God, no, God's word, right? The word to create, that creates fire. And if God uses the words to create water, you're not gonna end up with water. You're not gonna end up with fire, you're gonna end up with water, right? So can I, and, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky when you read mystical things that, oh, we say there's, there's, there's godly energy in the fire. And what we mean to say is that absent God's word, the fire would not be fire. The fire wouldn't exist. Does that mean the fire is the word of God? Does that mean the word of God is the fire? But that does mean in some sense, you can collapse the fire to the word of God because withdraw the f- word of God, there's nothing to the fire other than the influence of that word. And that gets messy and tricky. But when you, just one second, when you touch the fire, right, which you shouldn't do, right? You're not touching God. You're touching a thing God created. Right? And if you worship the fire, that's idolatry. And the sum total of all the things that God created is also not God. So if you worship the universe, you're just worshiping a bigger idol. Yeah. Um, sorry, this might be a weird question, but if I'm making a fire with like a match, Am I forcing God to speak that word to create that fire? You are touching on the issue we were going to address. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to. So I'm not going. I'm not going to answer it in its entirety, but I'm going to address the issue of it as we go forward. Okay. So, 
the so what he writes is that you know if someone were to identify God with his creations, yeah, that's that's obviously bad, and that's you know what what this new idea that is coming around in the world was is to say that there's only one thing that exists, which is you know God or or the, or or nature, and everything is just a way of interacting with and experiencing. And so you're, but that's not what that's not what we're saying. We're saying God creates the world. God is transcendent. This is very very important. Okay. Um, Transcendent means beyond. It means to go past. So here's this very important. Actually, I'm going to spend a minute on this. This is very important. Okay? The first thing that we learn about Hashem, about God in the Torah is what? That he created the world. He created the world. And what does that say about him? That tells me what he did. Nothing. It tells me something very important. He is above it. He is outside the world. So if you are... Walking around the world, encountering the world, engaging the world, guess what you are not bumping into? God. Because he is? That's right. This is the great insight of Avraham. That if it's, if it's part of my reality, it shouldn't be worshipped because it is not God. It's a very simple notion. It is very profound. It goes against paganism. It goes against animism. It goes against a lot of things. Now, this becomes messy and difficult when we start speaking about how God's presence is found in the world and God communicates with prophets. Like, all those things need to then be addressed and dealt with in some way. But we should never forget the basics. Okay? Yeah. Um, so, going back for a second, primary meaning of nature... So, so the primary meaning of nature, so that that was that that you you find is often you're talking about these things which are just the innate properties and tendencies of things. So, for instance, we would say it is the nature of people to talk. So, if you encounter a person, and this is a good way to ask your, to understand what we mean by nature. If you encounter a person, and they are not talking, not they're not talking right now, they just don't talk. What do we conclude? Something has happened, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay? Make sense? Okay, now, again, you can have a more sophisticated notion of nature, which is how natures interact with each other, right? So I wouldn't say it is the nature of wax to melt, but I might say it's the nature of wax, ma- nature of wax to melt with, under heat, right? And it's not the nature of heat to melt, but it is the nature of heat to radiate, and that certain things... The na- their nature is to melt in, the, in that presence of that heat, right? So you can get very sophisticated ways of talking and thinking about it, but, right? Um, and again, some natures are, and this notion of tendency is also important because saying in nature is not the same thing as saying what we nowadays, for those of you who studied science, it's not the same thing what we think of as a law. It's actually a very different idea, and I spent a minute to explain what I mean. The more traditional understanding of nature is that there's these innate properties and tendencies. Now, does a tendency always end up happening? No. Like, if I would say it is the tendency of, um, uh, if I, it's the tendency of, of somebody to, go, to run, it doesn't mean they're always running. It doesn't even mean there's a rule to determine when they run, right? Okay. Um, as we shifted into ways of thinking about the, about the world, and thinking of it more mathematically. And math does not allow for those types of things, right? One plus one equals two. That's not a tendency, that's an absolute, right? If I'm using math as my way of describing reality, what does that force me into? Everything becomes very absolute. Everything becomes very determined, 
So he knows what's going The idea of the clockwork, you know. So he starts talking about laws of nature. Like it has to be that way. So the old way of thinking is the tendency of, the tendency of rocks is to fall. Okay. Does that mean there's a, does that mean there's a, one second, does that mean, does that mean there's a law of gravity? No, what that means is that there's a, there is something about rocks that leads them to fall. And you know, that, that, does it always work? I mean, it's what works every time I've seen it. Is it necessarily have to always be the case? Nah, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't fully understand the scope of that nature. Okay. Um, you can see this issue when you start trying to apply the way we think about laws of nature to more complex things like, like zoology or psychology. And all of a sudden you start to realize that we, we have to resort to statistics because things really are just tendencies. Right? Like, you know, if, if you do X, then Y will happen is not really true in most in psychology. It's like people that do X tend to have this result. So the nature is a tendency. And they're like, you see what I'm saying? So, okay, maybe some tendencies all collapse all the way down to basic absolutes. But the idea of like, it, it is a law and it has to happen no matter what. Like that's just a, that's a that was a, a different way of thinking. So is there any absolute stuff? Well, we're going to talk about this when we come. We're coming back to chassidus. So even though we use it now, it's not necessarily... Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, people who are a deeper understanding of science actually know that that's not really true. Because um, just because you have a description of something doesn't mean that that's actually the way the thing really is. But anyway, setting all of that aside. So, here's the thing. Fire has a nature. Okay? The nature of fire is to consume, to radiate heat, to flicker, etc., etc. Yeah. The nature of water is to flow, to be cool, to the touch, etc. Right? The nature of people, incredibly complicated, we're still trying to figure out a, a holistic description of that, right? Okay, but here's the thing. These natures, which are distinct from each other, really is what makes each thing different from the other, right? The thing we have in common is we all exist. The thing that makes us different is, is, is found most readily in our different natures, right? By the way, if something exhibits the natures that are identified with one thing so strongly, you will identify it as that thing even as it looks like that. For instance, if you watch a cartoon and you have something in the cartoon which does not look human, but it is given a voice and it is given emotions and it is given a sense of personal purpose and drive, yes? Your mind will start relating to it as a kind of person even though it's like a box or a ball. See what I mean? Like, 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 because we identify those. The nature of people is to engage and to communicate, and to, these are parts of the natures of people. So we, we see that, right? Um, makes sense. Okay. So, where do these natures? Why, why do I have a different nature than than the pitcher? Why does the rock have a different nature than a tree? That's your individual nature. Why? According to you. This is all chassidus, right? I'm just talking. Just talking according to chassidus. That's right. So the, the word is responsible for the nature, right? Each word doesn't just create, create something. It also gives it its nature, right? And can that thing escape its nature? Because that is a defining part of what creates it, right? Make sense? Okay. So one of the Hebrew meanings of the word teva is to connect it back to the word matbeya. Matbeya means a coin. A coin is minted. And what does that mean? That you have the metal, and the metal is given a specific shape, right? With a particular image on it, right? And, what, and is that image inherent to the metal? 
No, but once it's been minted onto the metal, right, does, can the metal change it? No, right? It's just stuck that way. So here's the thing. Anything that exists in theory could have some other nature, as the altar points out. Like, in theory, you know, water could stand solid like a rock, right? There's no reason why, it, why the thing that God creates couldn't stand solid. I mean, proof being he created rocks that stand solid, so water could stand solid. But the divine word that creates water imprints it with the nature of what? Of being a fluid of flowing. And therefore, once that is the case, the water has to flow in as much as that it's, 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 that's its tendency. Now, so again, some tendencies are so strong that basically they come down to absolute. So like water, you know, never of its own accord flows back up, right? Um, but then you have other things, like for instance, um, you know, animals, right? Animals and nature of animals to seek out food. And yet we actually see that that, that nature is much more, is much more of a, a tendency and there's other things that might play a role that might not actually go seek out food at a particular time, right? Make sense? So what each word of God is doing is imprinting upon each creation a certain pattern of behavior, a certain set of tendencies and predispositions. And obviously those are very rich and complex. So when two different things interact, what happens? Like, so go think about the wax and the fire, what happens? The fire melts the wax versus wax and clay, what happens? Wax, the fire, sorry, fire, uh, fire and clay, what happens? Fire hardens the clay, right? So the hardening, right, is, what, is when these natures interact or the softenings when these natures interact and all of those things are being imprinted upon or minted into the creation by the word of God. So the word of God, it's like the word of God does two things. It creates the metal and it stamps it like the, like the mint. And now you have a, you know, whatever kind of coin it is. Except it's not just giving it its like physical shape. It's giving it every characteristic and every tendency that it has. Good? Okay. So that's nature. Yeah. The nature, one second. So the nature of things are those predispositions and tendencies. And for God, what nature is that he has what kind of relationship with things? Creation. He, he, he imprints upon them, right? For God, what is nature is that he is imprinting upon something, a pattern of existence, a set of tendencies that makes that thing and, and, and determines how that things interacts with the world. Okay, so now, and I'm gonna answer your question about the fire. God created fire, okay? And God created fire with a nature that it exists when things are being consumed and it ceases to exist when there is no consumption. So are you forcing God to create fire when you strike a match? And the answer is no. The fire already exists. This is a weird idea in Chassidus. The fire already exists. But the nature of fire is that its existence is a non-existence until combustion happens. If God were to stop speaking the word of fire, what would happen when you strike a match? So God is right now, right now God is speaking the word of fire. And right now the fire exists, but the fire has this weird quality, which is why it's used in analogy for chassidus for many of things, that it's, it's kind of natural existence is to not exist unless combustion is happening. So therefore, when God creates the fire, unlike creating water or creating rocks or creating trees, 
the fire exists in kind of almost a spiritual sense. That's how Chassidus understands the creation of fire. Whereas rocks, God just creates and the rock is there in a very tangible sense. Um, This is actually one of the reasons why we compare godliness to fire. God only has a kind of presence in this world when we do the right things in the world to bring his presence into it. Otherwise, he's not really here. As the verse says, um, Hashem, your God, is a consuming fire. Okay. So fire is a weird, fire is a weird, light also has a, is a weird, um, there are certain kind of creations that are actually quite weird, um, and that's why they're often used as analogies, but okay. Yes? Does God want us to believe that there are certain absolute truths because he made them with those natural tendencies, or if we understand that everything is just because it's a spoken word from Hashem, then really, even if the nature of fire is to, like, like when it's constantly to consume it will be a fire is that something we should like not have faith in but like you're asking a question that's too far advanced because we haven't finished the entire description we have to talk about miracles we have to talk about the interact and then you can ask the question okay I mean, it's the question I asked before like, I know but I'm not there I'm not there yet I'm not there yet I oh I, I have a whole class to teach I'm sorry okay now there is two rules of nature how many rules of nature are there? Two. There's only two. <laughs> what are the two rules of nature? Rule number one is consistency. A nature must be consistent. Because again, what are we saying nature is? Nature is when God creates something, he imprints it with a set of tendencies, <clears throat> patterns of behavior, right? Well, if that's inconsistent, then that's not then then it's it's not embedded into that thing. It's not imprinted into that thing. Does that make sense? Well, isn't the whole idea of tendencies is that it's like not consistent? No. So that that's so that's where you get into this notion of potential versus actual. The nature is consistent. The right when you speak about it when you speak about it being a tendency, what you mean to say is like this. Okay. Um. That tendency means that th- that this does occur with some degree of predictability, some degree of regularity, okay? But it is not necessarily, it is not necessarily absolute, um, and it is not necessarily um, entirely predictable in the moment, but overall it is predictable. This is actually a very important idea, so I'll give you an example. Right? Um, when you're interacting with the world, right? So there's certain things that are like extremely predictable. You drop something's gonna fall, like that's done, right? That's pretty absolute. We like that, right? We really like those kinds of things, right? Um, if I punch somebody in the head, right, like really hard, what's going to happen next? Um, I guess depending on that person's tendencies, they'll either fight back or run. Right. So, so what? Right. So already, so we can say, well, people have a have a tendency to respond to aggression in particular ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it would be like really stupid of me to punch someone in the head and then like really hard and then expect them to like go around and give me a hundred dollars, right? Like that seems odd, right? That wouldn't, that's not how reality is, right? But if I punch someone in the head, right? So, I mean, part of it is, you know, there's a human tendency of, of right, um, aggression, right? Or, or retreat, right? Fight or flight. And then there's that particular person's own unique balance of those tendencies. There's circumstantial factors, right? And so I can predict, you know, reasonably well that one of those two and probably even of those two, which is likely to happen, I might be wrong, right? But it's still reasonable to predict the next time the same thing, right? You see what I'm saying? There's a practical utility to this notion, 
Words, I don't need something to always be true, always actually be the case. Like, like you drop the, the rock and it falls 100% of the time for it to still be um, consistent. It's a consistent tendency. And I understand that sometimes it won't happen, but it, it will happen overall. This is why I give, give you an example. If you invest in the stock market, what they'll tell you is you should invest in some kind of like diversified thing and then leave it there for um, a, a long period of time. Why? Because it's like low risk. Because the, the tendency of the stock market is to, is to go up. So as long as you leave it there for long enough time, what's going to happen? You'll make... That's right. Yeah, but that's not, so the tendencies allow things to be predictable without having me to um, necessarily have everything perfectly down. Because there is a level of unpredictability, but that doesn't mean it's entirely unpredictable. And that predictability stems from the thing, right? People have these types of tendencies. Animals have these types of tendencies, mm-hmm. okay, right? Again, some tendencies are so strong and so absolute, they just happen all the time. And we would like everything to be that way because we can perfectly predict everything, and, right, but we can't, so. Okay. So one rule is that it has to be consistent. That, that's like they built into the very, that's actually how like the notion of, of the, na- the nature of these things makes is again functional to us, and that goes back to God. God is creating a world, and you know these are the different elements of the world are defined by these different natures, and so they have to the natures have to be consistent. In fact, like how you said, the sun comes out every right. So, right. So what ends up? So there's actually um, a deep appreciation of the that actually gives a kind of note, gives a sense of the 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 absoluteness of God that when God create something and imparts upon it, imprints upon it through his word, a particular nature, that nature is, ap- that nature is consistent. That nature will re- remain. It's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to lose. It doesn't need to be maintained. Right? And that's a good thing. When you think about what to figure out nature is things that need to be maintained are not the real nature of that thing. You don't need to maintain the heat of the fire. You may need to maintain the existence of the fire because the fire again, doesn't naturally exist in its tangible form. Okay. That's one thing. The other is differentiation. Natures are different from each other. So if God creates the world with his word, and his word doesn't just create things, but imparts upon them this nature, that means everything has certain properties or tendencies which are fixed about them and are distinct from other kinds of things. Okay. After that, you know. Now, w- w- there's an implied... I remember I told you there's two rules. Of third. There's an implied third rule. <laughs> okay, and the implied third rule is just applying the first rule over again. Remember how I said the nature has to be consistent? But remember, and then we said how like there's the nature of the thing and then there's how the, nature's, the, nature's, the nature of how different natures interact with each other? Well, then that means there needs to be consistency between those things, right? So it's not enough to speak about the nature of fire and the nature of wax. I also speak about the nature of the interaction of wax with the fire and the fire with the wax, right? And so that requires not just the consistency of that thing always has its nature, but the way the natures interact have to be consistent with each other. So it's not really a third thing, but what that ultimately means is you are a little bit constrained to what you can do. It's like if you've ever played, um, uh, what's it called? Um... Sudoku, right? We have the numbers, right? What, what, how you fill in one number constrains how you can fill in the other number, right? And a more sophisticated thing, like if you think about how you play any kind of game 
that has rules, right? Any movement in the game is determined by other movements in the game, right? The moves that you can make playing chess or the moves that are advisable in playing chess are determined by the setup of the board at a given point, right? And that's just applying that same principle, not to that one individual thing, but more broadly, okay? All right, so let me give you an example of nature. So you have carnivores. The nature of carnivores is to what? To eat animals, okay? And you have um, animals which we're going to call prey animals, Right? These are animals which carnivores prey upon. That's what we call prey animals. Now, what, the prey animals, um, they, they have a tendency to be eaten. The prey by, animals? Yes. How about a tendency? Well, is every, is every deer eaten by a wolf? No. No. But here's the thing. You match up the deers and the wolves. Well, okay, sometimes deers successfully outrun the wolves, but sometimes the wolves. And so, like, you think, you know, yeah, yeah. If someone says, you know, there was a deer and it was eaten by a pack of wolves, like, okay, that makes kind of, that makes sense. It's still it, to use. Like, do we have a tendency to get married? Yes, 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 yes. And in this sense, we would say yes. Yeah. Um, that's why even if you abolish, even if you abolish the social institution of marriage, people are still looking for long-term romantic partners and want them to be socially recognized, and are even considering how we can make ceremonies around that to make it more concrete when it begins and ends. Hmm. Strange. Um, <laughs> maybe we should call it marriage. Dependency sounds like not God. I know, but the thing is, the thing is, right? The the, the tendency is absolute, but natures have this quality of being tendencies, right? So. So, and what ends up happening, right? So now if prey animals are going to survive long-term, right, God, God is going to have to make it that the prey animals um, also have a tendency to survive. So they have a tendency to be eaten, hence their prey, but the tendency to survive, right? So one of the things that God does is he makes the amount of prey animals much larger than the amount of predatory carnivores, right? So that, so that enough will survive, so the species continues to survive. Other things like that, yeah? So far, so good? Wait, 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 wait. This is... Um, this is all leading up to something. But let us say you had an interesting situation where you had 70 predatory animals. We'll just say wolves for argument's sake. And you had one sheep. So what would, the, what would you assume would be the tendency? Now, it's entirely possible that that sheep is perfectly fine because the wolves aren't hungry right now. Or, you know, the wolves are, you know, sick or the wolves are, are busy or whatever, right? Like, but the tendency of the wolves is to eat the sheep. And here we don't have a situation where we've got a lot of sheep. And we've got 70 wolves. So back to the stock market thing, like, I'm not going to be shocked if I come back at any particular point of time and that wolf is torn to pieces, that sheep is torn to pieces, right? Yeah. And if I were to, and if someone were to tell me, oh yeah, that sheep is never going to be eaten by the wolves, ever, ever. It just will not happen, no matter what. That is a violation of nature, right? Do you understand? Like, notice, by the way, I didn't have to say there's a violation of the laws of physics here. There's, like, there's a, vi- like, the nature of the wolves, the nature of the sheep, the, this exact formulation of 70 wolves to one sheep, right? And again, understanding nature's our tendencies. If someone were to tell you it will never happen, you would say you are wrong. That's not correct. It will eventually happen that these wolves will eat the sheep, barring any some kind of thing changing, right? Good? Okay. So our sages say that the nature of the Gentile nations vis-a-vis the Jewish people is like that of wolves to a sheep. Which means, what is the natural state of the Jewish people, long-term and historical sense? To not exist, to have been eaten. 
Yes. In other words, if God were just to leave the world up to, you know, the nature of things, then we would be gone. Yes. Yeah. But now, have- I'm not going to explain because I want to focus on the specific things about nature versus miracles, why that's the relationship between the Gentiles, the 70 Gentile nations, and, and the Jews. That's a discussion for another time. But in as much as that is the case, right, our survival is unnatural. Not just because there's very few ancient peoples that exist to this very day, but just because, like, in principle, it's unnatural. Does that mean that we have also a tendency to this? What? If you're saying that a natural tendency of the Jewish nation is to not exist. Not exist, not because we would die out, but because the Gentiles will eat us. Well, so sure, but do we also have a tendency to, to exist? Yeah. Yeah, we're like a sheep, you know. What? We, we, like, yeah, if there were, no, if there were no, 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 no wolves around, the sheep's going to continue existing, right? I mean, it's a sheep, so I'm eventually die because it's a sheep, but whatever. Yeah. Did you say unnatural on purpose and not supernatural? Yeah, I... I, I What's the difference Because unnatural... When we speak about things that are not natural, so, for instance, we would say that the shape of this, of this plastic is not natural because, like, someone had to go and, like, make it into that shape, whereas the fact that the water is fluid is, is a natural thing. So we, the, term, the term that they, we end up using for that is artificial. Instead of natural and supernatural. Supernatural means something outside of the natural world. So why would this not be supernatural? What? Oh, the, oh, so that, right. So that we would say is supernatural because if we're saying like that's the totality of the world, right? Now, so someone comes along and like puts like a fence to block the, the, the wolves or something. But if we say, no, 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 everything is just the way it is. And yet the wolves cannot destroy the sheep. So there is something that is overriding, using here the word super, there's something that is overriding the nature, right? Something that is, that is, that is inhibiting the nature from coming into fruition, right? And God creates nature, so God overrides You keep jumping ahead, okay? So I got the wolves, I got the sheep, and the wolves are sitting there, and they're gnawing their teeth, and they're waiting to eat the sheep, and it just never happens. And if that ever happens, then you're saying, okay, well, there's something here overriding the nature of the wolves and the sheep, that the, right, that the sheep survives, right? right? Super meaning above and beyond, right? Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you a funny story. You've heard of Winston Churchill? Mm-hmm. Okay. Winston Churchill was once playing chess. And his, uh, his king was in check. So for those of you who don't know, the king in check means there's another piece threatening the king. The, the game of chess is to threaten the other person's king without the king being able to move to a safe square, and then you win. It's called checkmate. And so if your king is in check, you have to move the king to a safe square. And Winston Churchill um, did not move the king. He moved a different piece. And the person objected, said, you're in check, you have to move. He says, no, no, I'm going to continue to play about Republican because in Republic, there's no king, which is very Winston Churchill-y. Um, Here's the thing. When you play, let's say, chess, you are relating to the pieces. You are, you are, you are not like physically, but you are, you are imprinting upon those pieces certain characteristics, right? That they move in certain ways and interact with the board in certain ways. Okay. You transcend that, though. What do I mean by transcend? You are? Beyond Beyond that. And therefore, can you also decide to disregard that very same thing? 
and pick up the pieces and move them entirely differently, right? We usually call that cheating, right? That's called cheating because you're no longer playing the game. You are interacting with the pieces but entirely bypassing that normal route, okay? Now there's a Hebrew word, nace. Nace usually translated as miracle. It comes from the word for a banner, like something that is raised up. So when God says, you know what? I have decided to, instead of relating to my creations through my word, which is imprinting, imposing on each of them a nature, right? God is going to, he's God. And you know what God can do? That's whatever he wants. And so it's this creation is now getting two conflicting inputs. God's word is telling him to do one thing. And God's, we'll use a different term, God's will is telling him that God wants something else. Okay, so let me explain the story. Tom tells a story of one of the sages. Um, but I could be misremembering. Pinchas Ben was traveling to redeem captives. Um, he had money, he had to redeem captives from the Roman government. It's a very big deal. And he encounters the river, the name of the river is Ganai. And he tells, and the river is flowing, and he needs to get across. So he tells the river, split, right? Which is obviously what you do when you encounter a river. You tell it to, <laughs> to split. And the river responds and says, no. It says, I was told by God to be a river, and rivers flow, they don't split. And Rabbi uh, Fichas Binyar says, well, yeah, but I was told by God that I should go redeem the captives, so you need to split. And the river says, well, that's very nice, but I'm doing what God told me to do. There's a big doubt whether you're actually being successful in redeeming the captives. I'm not going like, to defer like, my instructions for your instructions. Well, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I mean, it's your problem. You figure out how to do what you're supposed to do. And who says you're going to succeed anyway? Which is, like, it's a re- valid point, right? Yeah. So what do you do when someone makes a valid point against you in an argument? You threaten them. So Rabbi says, if you don't split, I will decree upon you that there will never have been a river here from the beginning of creation. I will undo your existence. And the river splits. And he walks across the river and redeems the captives. Well, how could he threaten that? Why not? This is not God. No, but the story was... One uh, second, one second, one second. Obviously, it's not God. Why is that relevant? Okay, fine. You could threaten it, sure. But doesn't the river know that he doesn't have that capability? Well, here's the thing. I like how that's your question. Of all the questions on the story, that's the one you have. talking to the river, then the river's obviously listening. Okay. Okay. So... the guy can't split the river... One second, one second. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. In regular countries, do people have the power, like the legal power, to just like physically restrain you and lock you in small rooms? No. No. Right? People don't have that power, right? In normal countries. So how come we can arrest people and throw them in prison? Because isn't that people confining and restraining people and throwing them in small rooms and 
And the answer is the, the power is invested in them. It's not their power. It's the power of the state. And the state is the embodiment of the sovereignty of society writ large. And society has that power. Society has power, but not the individual person. But that power is then invested in the officer that arrests and the judge which sentence and the sheriff which actually goes or marshal brings you to prison. Not you, someone else, right? Okay, so obviously. So what is the, what, what was Rupinach's Banyar saying? I'm God. I'm on a mission of the king and I have been empowered to succeed in that mission with, you know, under the, okay, so like, that's not a big issue. But the more interesting question is like, why is, why is Pinchas ben Yar saying override what God directly told him, right? And the idea is, um, if you think about it in a person, speech is, is a very superficial thing, right? Speech is externalizing things. And so the structure of how you speak, the words that you're using, right, is based on communicating with others. Whereas your will, your desire is very internal, right? That's what drives all of your, um, everything about you, right? So now, have you ever had the experience where someone, you said something and then someone starts acting? And she's like, that's not what I meant. You said, but that's what you said. I know that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. You are misunderstanding my words. You say, but last time you said it, it meant this. I know that is true. Last time I said it, it meant that. But now when I'm saying it, that's not what I mean. So you want your intent to override your words. You want them to disregard the words in favor of your actual intent. So if God tells the wolves, you are wolves, they say, so we got to eat the sheep. It's like, don't eat the sheep. But you said I'm a wolf. That's right. And wolves eat sheep. Right. But my intent is that you not eat the sheep. But a wolf eats the sheep. I know that. But my intent is that the wolf not eat the sheep. But wolves eat sheep. Intent overrides what I, the, my intent overrides my, what I, the words I actually said. And as long as that is the case, will the wolves eat the sheep? No. And that God's intent superseding and overriding God's word, that is a miracle. Whereas when reality just conforms to the word, then that is nature. Hashem, right, creates fire. And fire, one of the natures of fire is that it burns flesh. It's a thing fire does. And I you know, hope you've never experienced it personally. Just one second. So Avram gets thrown in the fire and he doesn't get burned. Why? Was the fire not hot? He put his trust in God and it was not the intent of God that the Avram should be burned, right? right? And now the fire is getting conflicting messages. God is telling the fire to be fire and fire burns. But the fire is also, now God is conveying to the fire his will that the fire not burn the flesh of Avram. And so what happens? The fire doesn't. doesn't. Now, so what is that? That is, that is the, um, God's intent overriding and superseding his word. But okay. then why is intent one part of, of the nature intrinsically? Meaning like intent seems like to be, seems like it's a line of events, which is like just a piece of this line. Like intent is not something that is additional. Oh, no, no, no. No, the intent is something that's additional. That is the point. Now to understand that deeper, then you would have to say there's actually two levels of intent. There's the intent that drives the words and there is an intent which, we're going to use that dangerous word again, transcends the words. So they're different? That's right. In other words, like this. 
if I say something, right? The, the, if I said something, there was a reason why I said it. But that reason why I said it can actually be broken down to two things. There is um, what, what, why I said those words, what those words are supposed to mean, right? But then there's the context of why I said those words. For instance, this happens all the time when someone says something and they meant it sarcastically. Um, have you ever had that thing where like someone's speaking sarcastically, but you're not sure if they're speaking sarcastically? Okay. Right? Because there's, 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 there's a larger sense of things and, you're not sh- and, and if that comes, it completely changes and overrides things. Okay? So, and this is important, Hasidus says, for numerous reasons, but we're just going to focus on one. Let us say that everything, every, there was, there was this, 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 this phenomenon of God's like deeper intent never came and overrode the word. God's word. What would happen then? How would that change reality? The words would seem absolute. The words would seem absolute. In other words, rather, it's exactly right. Rather than the words being freely chosen by God, rather than the words being a convention, the words would seem to reflect God's, that as if somehow that's God's nature. Let me explain to you what I mean. We speak languages, okay? And... Languages have conventions, right? Rules of grammar. Why am I calling them the conventions? Because there's not really, they don't have to be that way. For instance, in English, you have to put the subject before the predicate, right? Yeah, you can't say, went to the store I. That just sounds wrong. But like, there's no reason why you couldn't. It's teaching a piece of Gemara, and Aramaic has this weird convention that it uses sometimes, where the central character of a story that is particularly relevant is mentioned um, first, and then the sentence. So the sentence was a man named Runya. And the sentence, the sentence literally translates, Runya surrounded him, Ravina, on his four sides. That's like literally, if I translate word for word in order, that's, that's what does that sentence mean? Being, being right, so Ravina surrounded Runya on his four sides. But they put Runya first because it's a story about Runya. But like, that's a convention that exists in, in, in Talmudic Aramaic and doesn't exist in English. And like... I mean, you can play with things and using commas to kind of accomplish similar things, right? But these are conventions, right? Um, Hebrew is annoying to English speakers because the word order is entirely fluid, yeah. right? Um, you know, English, English is incredibly annoying because there's all of these things like helping verbs, which just drive you know, Hebrew speakers <laughs> crazy. It's like, why do you, why, why do you need that? Why, like, why, 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 can't you, why, why do you need this is? It is red. Just say it red. Like it's, it, we understand what you mean. <laughs> yes? Okay. Now here's the thing. Let's imagine you're American for a moment. If you're American, this is great. If you're not, you have to really imagine. Americans are special because Americans only speak one language. Um, and Americans, because they only speak one language, they don't realize that grammar is a convention in a way that like anybody who speaks more than one language has like an intuitive sense that it's a convention. No, but like, like real, like if you speak more than one language, like there is this deep sense that like a lot of these things just could be otherwise. It doesn't have to be that way because you've experienced different versions of it. Like not being surprised by um, exemptions. Exemptions or, or, or the fact that word orders can mean different things. And it's like, it's like yeah, okay, fine. Like you, once you already have two, it's like, okay, you see it's kind of, there's an arbitrariness. It's a convention, right? But if you're an American and you grew up in the United States, <laughs> um, but, but it doesn't make sense. Like, what do you mean? And English does make sense? 
it's not make sense. You're so used to it. You start, it, it starts to define your sense of language in a way that it really shouldn't. Okay. So now, remember what I said about those rules of nature? There's this, there's this consistency, both internally and overarchingly, and there's also differentiation. Yeah. And that ultimately comes from the word of God. Well, if I, and if I don't think about that the right way, I could come to the conclusion that, that those distinctions and those consistencies, in fact, are just the natural consequence of God's own nature. Yeah. And once I have that, do I really have a tr- truly transcendent God? No. No. Because everything is an extension. And nature becomes the God. And then what I say is nature is derivative from God rather than being a choice of God, right? It is, it is, it is, it is, it is something God is defined by, right? The nature in the world is something that derives from God's own nature, God forbid, rather than saying it's the convention that God has for how it creates the world, but ultimately God is entirely transcendent and volitional and doesn't have to be that way. And if God wants to make that clear to the creations, then what has to happen? There has to be a sense that the, the natural aspect of reality coming from this very defined way God's relating to the world ultimately is subordinate to God's pure will. And so like, could God have gotten the river split some other way or gotten Pinchas ben to redeem the captives without splitting the river? Yeah. Could God have saved the Jewish people without splitting the sea? Could God have done it without, could God accomplish whatever ends he wants without miracles? Other than conveying that that these that these natural tendencies that he that that follow from the words that he's speaking is just because he's choosing to speak these words. He could doesn't have to. He's not. He doesn't have to speak those words. It's all a convention. And that's why nice comes from him. That's right, because it raises up a higher awareness. That's right, and this also helps us understand another thing. There is an idea in Hasidus of a nace of a miracle clothed in nature. You say, well, how does that make any sense? Because the, I mean, if it's clothed in nature, then there's still nature. Because the idea is that the miracle is the subordinating of nature to God's, to a, to a, to God's transcendent will. That's what it is, right? And nature, again, is a way God relates, to, is the result of God relating to the world in some way. God relates to the world in a way by speaking, and that gives things a kind of co- consistent and, and um, distinct quality that has a structure to it. That's how the world is. But the idea is like that is the most superficial aspect of, of God relating to the world. And the deepest aspect, what? Can you give an example? Of the nature of things? Of a miracle nature. I will in a second. Okay. Um, and the, the, and the, and, and, the, but that's ultimately subordinate to the fact that God is free to desire reality to be however he wants it to be, right? He doesn't, I, this, reality being that way is because he spoke it that way, not because that derives from, from the kind of being he is. Okay. So the fact that the word of God is subordinate to the will of God, right? And that that's revealed, when that's made evident, that's the miracle. But here's the thing, there's two ways to subordinate. There's you can subordinate in a way that you completely disregard and override. Or you can subordinate in the sense of making someone obedient. So for instance, let's say you're the boss and your employee isn't doing what you want, right? Well, you could just bypass your employee, right? Like when employees like doesn't matter. Like I'm gonna go. Right, you know, just, I, I'm the boss. Whatever you say doesn't matter. Just dismiss them. Right? Ignore them. Bypass them. Right? Or you fire them. That is 
No, I mean, this means like, so let's say, let's say, let's say you want to hire a particular firm to do something, right? And the employee doesn't want to make the call because they don't think that that's the right person to hire, right? You say, well, that's very nice. I'm the boss. So like, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to just call them myself, right? Or I can, I'm going to make you do it because if you don't do it, I'm going to fire you. In both cases, what you're doing is you're, 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 there's a kind of a, 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 a violence, right? You're, you're, you're exerting your authority over them and they're, and they're, right? One is that you don't need them at all. The other is that you're making them do something they don't want to do, right? And so you're, you're, you're not really, even when you make them do it because you're threatening to fire them or something, in some sense you're really bypassing them because they're a person, right? Um, I heard this line from Rabbi Vichlin, and I don't remember, he was quoting a businessman, I don't remember who it was. But the businessman um, was having a meeting with, it was like a very, very wealthy, 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 wealthy person, I don't remember who it was. And he was having a meeting with, with the CEOs of companies that he had, and he was making a point, and, and uh, they were disagreeing with him. In the end, he said, listen, I'm right, you're smart, eventually you'll figure it out. What does that mean? I'm right. You're smart. So use your smarts to figure out how I'm right and make it happen. Right? Is there still this notion of subordination there? Yeah, yeah but it's not, it doesn't have that kind of violent, overriding, dismissive tendency. So when God splits the sea, that's a miracle where God's desire, right, overrides his word in such a way that the word is, you know, being, being, being um, denigrated. Like the fact that it's water means nothing. Let it stand like a rock. Um, what about the miracle of Purim? So miracle of Purim, just to be clear, right? God withdraws his miraculous protection of the Jewish people. And therefore what happens? Genocide is about to ensue because that's the natural order of things, right? Wolves, sheep, 70 wolves, one sheep, okay. Then what happens? The Jewish people repent, blah, blah, blah. And the Jewish people are saved. Did like... Well, what happened? The king, I'm going to put it this way. The king decided to get rid of his prime minister, his vizier, um, because of complications and interpersonal relationships between him and his wife, right? Um, And then realized that she was related to a loyalist who had saved him from an assassination attempt. Right, um, and then thought maybe it's maybe politically expedient to side with that particular minority of his empire rather than allow them to be vanquished. I mean that that doesn't sound like a totally crazy thing for a person to do, does it? Right, it's not like you know Paro where you know he gets smacked around with you know until like he's forced to like I can't what do I I can't I can't. I, I mean, you know, if, if, the, if, if the water's going to turn to blood and there's going to be frogs and, you know, and all the animals are going to die and, like, you know, the firstborn is just going to die at midnight because God decrees it. Like, like I, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean? Hanukkah and are different So Hanukkah and Purim are different. Hanukkah is also not clothed in nature. Right. So so you can start debating. And so Hasidus discusses this. But, and the last thing I say is, it's all very nice, but this also takes place within ourselves. We have a nature. And we can serve God in our nature. And what is our nature? Our tendencies, right? We look, we, as human beings, we, we, we have tendencies. We look for meaning. We look for belonging. 
We look for regularity. We look for beauty. Yes? And then you have and your own individual combination of that. And can those be the channels and motivations that bring you to service of God? Yeah, okay. And what happens when God says, okay, now I need you to do a mitzvah and there's no human meaning and there's no beauty in it and there's none in any of this. Can you be devoted to God then? Well, do you have, so the question is, do you have a will that transcends your nature? And if you do, so then you are enacting within your own self a miracle and absolute devotion, tshuva, these types of things are miracles within the person and they can be done in two ways. They can be done in a way where you totally disregard your own humanity or you, you, you tell yourself, you know, this is, this is godly. So find a way to make it beautiful. This is godly. Find a way to make it meaningful. And that would be a personal miracle clothed in nature. Or you could say, this is godly. I don't care that it's not beautiful. I don't care that it's not meaningful. That would be a miracle that overrides nature. But to serve God within your nature would mean you can only connect to God when you find God within one of these human tendencies that resonates with you. And there's a correlation between us doing miracles and God doing miracles. Our doing miracles prompts him to do miracles and his doing miracles prompts us to do miracles. Prompts us? That's right. Because we're in a relationship. And you know, the, one, of the, one of the natures of beings in a relationship is we tend to react and reciprocate the way we're treated. In fact, one of the biggest miracles we can do is we can be devoted to God when it seems like he's abandoned us. And one of the deepest miracles he does is protect us even when we abandon him. Because that violates the basic nature of relationships. All right, we will end with that.